All of us have heard sermons on the cross. Uh, majority of the times when you hear sermons about the cross, the uh, one doing the speaking will uh, spend some time undoubtedly talking about the suffering that Jesus spent uh, while he was on the cross. Uh, they'll talk about the suffering that he endured both during his trial and uh, during the beating that he took, the crown of thorns being placed upon his head, the fact that there were nails riven into his hands and feet, uh, talk about the agony that he suffered while he was on the cross. And we need to make sure we understand and appreciate how much Jesus Christ did suffer for each and every one of us. And also preachers will talk about the fact of atonement that took place. Jesus Christ, of course, paid our debt. Jesus Christ is the propitiation of our sins. Jesus Christ is the one who took our place. Because of his death on the cross, we can have salvation from our sins. Because of the blood that he shed, he became the ultimate sacrifice so that mankind could be saved. And a lot of emphasis needs to be placed upon that also. We need to spend some time talking about the suffering of Jesus Christ. We need to spend some time talking about the atoning factor that took place on the cross. This morning I want to piggyback on those two things and talk about some things perhaps you've never thought about when it comes to the cross. There are a lot of things going on behind the scenes that we never realize. There are some things happening that uh, is almost remarkable when you start to think about how all these things fell into place and how they even give us a greater picture of what's happening on this occasion when God gave His only begotten Son to die for each and every one of us. When we think about the very Son of God dying on the cross, we need to think about some things that took place on this occasion uh, that, to me, are really ironic. I want to spend some time talking about the remarkable ironies of the cross. Now, for those of you who maybe aren't familiar with the word irony, uh, irony simply means that which you would not expect or the opposite of what you would expect. Uh, on this occasion, when Jesus died for the sins of the entire world, there were some things going on that perhaps you've never noticed. But I want you want to bring it to your attention this morning to help you have a greater appreciation of what took place when God's only Son died for each and every one of us. First of all, this morning, I want you to think about the fact the very first irony that took place on this occasion is the fact that the judge of all the earth stood before a judge. Now think about that for a few moments. Jesus Christ, the judge of all the earth. Romans chapter 14 and verse 10 reminds us that one day each and every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. But yet on the occasion of Christ's death, the judge of all the earth stood before a judge. I think most of us are familiar with what took place on that occasion. Jesus Christ, after he had stood before the Sanhedrin and they realized that they could not condemn him because of Roman law, they sent him to the governor of Palestine, a guy by the name of Pontius Pilate. And there he stood before Pontius Pilate and he was going to be judged by him whether or not he was worthy of death. 
Now, Pontius Pilate understood that Jesus was an innocent man. He understood that Jesus had done nothing wrong. But from a political angle, though, he wanted to make sure he appeased the people. So he decided that he would just wash his hands of the whole affair and just let the people be the one who would judge Jesus. In fact, he even gave the people the opportunity to choose between Barabbas, a known criminal, and Jesus Christ. And you remember the verdict of the crowd as they passed judgment on Jesus. They said, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus Christ stood before Pilate, an earthly judge, even though... He would be the one who would judge all the earth. Now think about the unfairness of that. Think about the fact that here was the Son of God. Here was the man that had the power of the universe in his hands. A man that could have called 10,000 angels. A man who was as innocent as any man who had ever lived. And he stands before a judge and this judge condemns him. But then you think about the fact that one day, not only Pilate, not only those Jews who cried crucifying, but each and every one of us who are here today is going to stand before that judge. As I said, Romans chapter 14 and verse 10 makes it very clear when it says that every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day. And so the greatest of all judges who was on this occasion judged, we're going to stand before that great judge one day. But if you're here today and you're a Christian, if you have obeyed the commands that Jesus laid down in becoming a Christian by believing and repenting and confessing me and baptized for the remission of your sins, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 very clearly says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus this morning and you stand before the greatest judge who there is, you can be like the Apostle Paul When he knew he was coming to the end of his life, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning at verse 6, he says, For I'm now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me a crown, and not only to me only, but to all those that love his appearing. We oftentimes miss the last part of that phrase that says, love his appearing. Now think about that for a moment. When Jesus Christ comes back, as the Bible very clearly says, he'll come with his angels and there'll be the sound of the trumpet and the great shout and we will rise to meet the Lord in the air. For some, that will be a day of tragedy. For some, though, it should be a day of triumph. It should be a day that we love. It should be a day that we look forward to. Because we have fought the good fight, we have finished the course, we have kept the faith because we know that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But folks, the opposite is true also today. Let me go ahead and say at the onset today that if you're not in Christ Jesus, 
If you've never been baptized into his death, if you've never had your sins forgiven because of his atoning blood, that will indeed be a day of tragedy. There's a great day coming, a great day coming, when the sinners shall hear their doom depart. I know you not. Are you ready for that day to come? But still, don't miss the irony of this, that the judge of all the earth stood before a judge. There's something else I find ironic as I start looking at the events of this occasion. The friend of sinners walked to the cross friendless. Jesus Christ, who is the friend of sinners, Jesus Christ, who wants to be your friend, walked to the cross friendless. This was the practice that took place during this time that when a man was convicted of a crime and was going to be crucified, they would basically have a parade and they would choose the longest route possible. The reason why they chose under Roman law the the longest route possible was because of two things. First of all, um, they wanted to make sure that justice was fully carried out in the sense that this man had the opportunity to be proven not guilty. So uh, some historians believe that they chose the longest route so there would be ample opportunity for anyone to step forward and say, this man is not guilty and I am an eyewitness to the fact that he is not guilty or I'm here to present some truth that this man is not guilty. But we know, even though there were so many, even Pilate himself who knew that Jesus Christ was an innocent man, the day that Jesus needed a friend the most. Nobody stepped forth from that crowd during that long parade as Jesus carried the cross. But another reason, they chose the longest route possible from the prison, if you will, to that place called the place of the skull, Golgotha is because they wanted to torture the person who is the convicted criminal as much as possible. They wanted to humiliate him. They wanted everybody to see that he was guilty of his crimes. And so you here you have Jesus Christ, who had already been beaten, had already been spit upon, had already had a crown of thorns placed upon his head, and now he is required to carry on his back the very instrument of execution that was going to put him to death. I was thinking about this the other day, and I thought about the fact when I was a little boy, um, my dad used to whip me with a switch. Now, today that's not too popular, and I bet if somebody saw him do that today, first of all, they think it'd be odd for somebody as old as him whipping somebody as old as me. But my point is, if they saw me when I was a little kid today and my dad was whipping me with a switch, see, they'd probably call the police because that's just inhumane. But you know, getting whipped with a switch was one thing, but perhaps the worst thing about getting whipped with a switch was having to go out in the yard and find your own switch to be whipped with. And you had to be very careful because if you brought back a little twig, that would just make somebody more angry. And you didn't want to get a real big one because you want to be able to walk the next day. So you had to find the perfect switch that had just enough power. 
and maybe didn't have too many little knots or knobs on it that would make impressions upon your legs. But that is minor compared to what we got going on here. Can you imagine being a condemned prisoner and the warden telling you that before we shoot you to death in front of a firing squad, I want you to clean every gun that's going to be used for your execution. Or for that matter, the governor or the um, warden of the prisoner coming to you and saying, you're going to be hanged in the, mo- in the morning, and here is the rope. I want you to tie the hangsman, hangman's noose that's going to carry out the execution. Now, we think about that being cruel, cruel and in, inhuman. But that's exactly what's going on here. Jesus Christ had to carry the very means by which he was going to be executed. He had to carry the instrument of execution on his back to the place where he's going to be put to death. But because of the loss of blood and because of dehydration and because of the pain and the suffering that he was going through, as Jesus was carrying this cross, he stumbled and began to fall. And all of a sudden, out of the crowd, hundreds came to help him. No. You see, the remarkable irony of all this is Jesus, who was a friend to all, he had no friends that day. Nobody stepped forward. In fact, the Bible tells us that they had to force a man. The King James Version says they compelled a man by the name of Simon, of Serene. They had to force a man to come in and help Jesus. Help Jesus carry the cross. Here was a man who was the friend of sinners. But on this particular occasion, there was not one friend who came and stood by his side. Not one friend came out of the crowd that lined the streets that day and said, that's an innocent man. Not one friend offered to help him as he was suffering. Jesus walked to the cross friendless. And he did that for each and every one of you. But as I think about this occasion, especially as Jesus carried the cross, I can't help but think about the irony of this. The one who promised the easy yoke and the light burden struggled carrying the weight of the cross. You remember the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 20, uh, Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 28. Now he says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy burdened. The one who issues the invitation to, to come and, and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The same Jesus was made to walk to Calvary, carrying the weight of the cross on his back. Historians estimate that the weight of the cross was around 300 pounds. And so there is some discussion about whether or not Jesus actually carried both the tall piece that went vertical and the horizontal piece that went across because they say there's no way humanly possible that somebody in his condition could carry a cross that heavy for that length of time. And of course, obviously, Jesus struggled and they had someone take his place, but yet still another man by himself cannot carry the weight of 300 pounds. So most people think that it occurred like this. 
that he carried just the cross piece, if you will, because that's why they call it the cross, and that his hands uh, would be tied to this cross piece, which weighed about 100 pounds, and how that it was like a a yoke upon his back. It was like a a burden that would be placed upon oxen or that type of thing, that he literally became a beast of burden as he carried this heavy weight, making sure that by the time he did get to the place where he was going to be executed, that he'd be so physically exhausted that death would take place very quickly. Jesus, as we've already talked about, was so dehydrated and lost so much blood. The burden was so heavy that someone else had to step in and help him, but still don't miss the idea and the irony of it all, that the one that offers the precious invitation, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, why could Jesus offer that invitation? Well, because on this particular occasion, he not only carried the burden of the cross on his back, but he carried the burden of the entire world on his back as he was taking those fateful steps to the cross where he would die for the sins of all mankind, where he would die for my sins and die for your sins. He carried that burden so we would not have to carry the burden of our sins anymore. And he could offer that precious invitation. Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden. Jesus Christ wants to take our burdens. He wants to take the burden of sin away from us. And he proved that on this ironic day when the one who promised the easy yoke and light burden struggled carrying the weight of the cross. But there's another irony that comes to mind on this occasion. The one who brought joy to the world was followed by weeping women. It's interesting as Jesus uh, walked toward Calvary, uh, there followed behind him some women who are weeping. I think this is ironic when you think about the fact that the reason why Jesus came to this world was to bring joy to the world. In fact, we have a song that we sing, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. The whole purpose of Jesus Christ was to bring happiness, was to bring joy. In fact, you remember when the angels uh, appeared to the shepherds out in the field. It was all about joy. Can you imagine the joy that took place when Jesus healed the lame, they could walk again. When he healed the blind and they could see again. When he could heal the deaf and they could hear again. Imagine the joy that we read about in John chapter 6 of that man who had been uh, crippled from, or been blind from birth. Jesus healed him. Can you imagine the joy that came in his life when he was able to see and he was able to live life fully? And imagine the joy that came to people when Jesus rose or caused a loved one to be risen from the dead. Or for that matter, imagine the joy that came to someone when Jesus says, Thou sins have been forgiven. Jesus came to this world to bring joy. But on this occasion, we have some women who are following Jesus. And as they 
watched the scarred back of Jesus that had been ripped to ribbons because of the whipping when they saw the crown of thorns upon his head as those thorns digged into his head and the blood ran down his face as they saw the exhaustion that Jesus was carrying this cross and how that he was stumbling, how that they wept and wailed. Because folks, this was the saddest occasion that ever took place on the face of the earth. The very Son of God had to die. And the reason why He had to die was because of my sins. And the reason why He had to die was because of your sins. And I don't understand it. I can't fully comprehend it. I don't know why God loves us so much. Jesus went through all that torture and pain and death so that we could have forgiveness of sins. And as the women who followed behind Jesus, as they watched the one that came to bring joy to the world, they wept and they wailed when they saw the sad situation of the torment and the pain and the agony and the exhaustion that Jesus Christ went through. What an ironic day. A day that now because of what Christ has done, does bring joy to our hearts. We can say, I've been redeemed, I've been redeemed. Thank God I've been redeemed. But on this occasion, it was one of the saddest days on the face of the earth. A perfect man died. An innocent man died because of who I am and because of who you are. But still, there's one other thing I want you, or two other things I want you to think about. I want you to think about the ironic thing, how the Holy Son of God died between two criminals. I don't think this was accident. I think this was predetermined. I think it was predetermined by God, of course, and I think it was predetermined by the Roman governments, maybe to perhaps to to appease the Jews. You see, the fact that Jesus died between two criminals and he's right there in the middle of both of them, I don't believe is accidental. I think that's done on purpose. I think they're trying to make sure that everybody understood that Jesus was guilty and they're going to make sure everybody understood he was guilty because he was going to be guilty by association. He wasn't just one of the criminals that were there on that occasion. He was the centerpiece. He was the man in the middle. He was the one that everybody was focused on. He was just as bad as the rest of them is what everybody, or what the Roman government and the Jews wanted everybody to understand. Here was not an innocent man, but here was a guilty man. And to prove it, we're going to put him right in the middle between two thieves. But of course, that makes sense as far as God's plan is concerned. Jesus is there in the center because God wanted us to be centered on Jesus Christ. He wants us to be centered on Jesus Christ because as we look at the two thieves on the cross that Jesus was between, we uh, are reminded of the fact that he was dying in our place and in a sense, we are those two thieves. Many years ago, there was a preacher friend of mine who got to visit the uh, Holy Land, and there's all kinds of different things you can go to, different shrines and whatnot, and uh, some of it's based on tradition, some of it's based on fact. 
But he went to a place that, uh, there's like four or five around the city of Jerusalem, but one of the places that presumed to be uh, Calvary Hill, Golgotha. And in this particular area, they have the three crosses, and they have an opportunity, if you want to, because there's a little podium there, that you can stand up and get on one of those crosses, and somebody can take your picture. And he thought about getting his picture made, and he proceeded to the middle cross, and then he realized, no, that's not where I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be on one of the other crosses. Because in the crucifixion story, I'm the thief. I'm the sinner. Jesus Christ is the perfect one. He is the holy one. He is the one that took my place. Jesus Christ who knew no sin, became sin for us, as 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 reminds us, he took our place. He became what God needed so that we could be righteous. In other words, think about it this way. The holiest of men died for the most unworthy man. The holiest of men died for you, the most unworthy person. The holiest of men was placed between two common criminals so that we could have forgiveness of sins. The Holy Son of God died between two criminals. One final thing I want you to think about that strikes me as being very ironic in this whole scene, and that is a sign of ridicule above his head proclaimed the undeniable truth. This was our scripture reading this morning, and the reason I wanted it to be our scripture reading this morning because of all the ironies I see in this story, this is the most remarkable one. How that when Pilate decided that Jesus was going to be put to death, he had a placard, he had a sign that was made that... um, was going to proclaim the crime that Jesus Christ has committed. Now, he didn't just single Jesus out in doing this. Uh, this was a common practice uh, when a person was being crucified. You know, I mentioned the long parade they had. Well, at the beginning of this parade, as they paraded the condemned prisoner along the way, there would be a soldier in the front of the procession who would hold up this placard on a stick to let everybody know the reason why This person was being put to death. On this occasion, the crime that was written on this placard, so everybody could see what Jesus' crime is, what he was guilty of, why he's being put to death, it simply said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, what I find ironic about that is, uh, Pilate put it up there, maybe as a way to help justify the fact that he is crucifying this man because of the fact he was someone who was rebelling against the Roman government. Maybe he put it up because he wanted to make sure that the Jews were appeased, that, you know, this is what, what he, he is really being guilty of, even though they tried to say, no, don't do that, just say that he claimed to be. And he, wrote, he said, I've written what I've written. 
But the thing that strikes me as so ironic is the fact that maybe what he had done as ridicule, maybe what he had done in jest, maybe what he had done to get at the Jews for some reason was the undeniable truth. This is the king of the Jews, and not only the king of the Jews, but the king of all mankind. But also as I look at this placard, what strikes me as very interesting is the irony of the fact that he wrote it in three different languages. Some translations say Hebrew, some say Aramaic. But the point is, the language of the Hebrew people is there. The language of the Greek people is here. The language of the Roman people is here. And as you start thinking about how that all three of those languages proclaim that Jesus Christ is the king of the Jews, I want you to think about how that these three great nations are brought together with their three great languages and how all of that was a part of God's plan and how ironic it is even now as Jesus dies on the cross above his head is God's scheme of redemption. You see, it was through the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, God picked as a chosen nation for which the Messiah would come. He picked a nation that believed in the one true God. He picked a nation that would keep his bloodline pure so that from the promise made to Adam and Eve in the garden there to the very time that Jesus died on the cross, God's plan unfolded beginning with Abraham and going through his family until you get to the 12 tribes of Israel. And out of that one tribe would be the tribe of Judah, and out of that tribe the Messiah would come. And so the Hebrew people served their purpose in bringing us the Messiah. But then you have the Greek nation, and the thing remarkable about the Greek nation is they were the first nation that provided the world a universal language. And so the great truths about this Messiah, this great truth about how the Son of God died for each and every one of us, this great truth that God loves us, could be something that could be understood by all men. Our New Testament was originally written in Greek because that was a universal language, a language that brought all mankind together, that we could hear the good news of how Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost, Luke 19.10. But also when you think about how the, the final phrase up here is in Latin. The language of the Romans. The Romans had conquered the world, but in conquering the world, they brought the world together. By their systems of government and by their systems of roads and commerce and whatnot, the world was truly unified for the first time. They were the most powerful empire that the world had ever seen uh, and that was all brought together at this time. There was a people, there was a language, there was a law and a land. And they're all brought together, these three great nations, these three great languages, here in an ironic way, all proclaiming the same thing, that Jesus Christ is the King of the Jews. 
The Hebrew language declares it. The Greek language declares it. The Latin or the Roman language declares it. What simply was meant as a sign of ridicule, proclaim the absolute truth. Jesus Christ now rules in his kingdom, the church. Jesus Christ is not only the king of the Jews, but he's the king of the world. And Jesus Christ needs to be the king of your life. I hope the, the ironies that we've talked about today are perhaps some things you've not thought about before. But at the same time, I hope they instill into you, into you once again what Jesus Christ did for you and I what that death should mean to you and I. And I hope this morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you'll very carefully contemplate what Jesus Christ did so that you could have forgiveness of sins. And for those of us who are Christians, when we think about the great sacrifice that Jesus made for each and every one of us, even though we don't deserve it, even though we can't comprehend it, even though we fully won't realize it until... We get to spend eternity with heaven. We need to understand and always appreciate that God loves us. His mercy and his kindness is enduring forever. And like that centurion on that day when he saw all these things transpiring, he simply said this. Now when the centurion, they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. If you have a need this morning, we sincerely hope that you'll respond as together we stand and sing the invitation song. Won't you come?